Welcome to episode 5 of the Autism Podcast, delivered by the London Autism Group Charity. In this episode, Kieran and I talk with Carly Jones, MBE, who is autistic herself and a parent to autistic girls. She is a very well-known autism advocate, whom, since 2008, has been campaigning for greater acceptance, equality of diagnosis education and safeguarding of autistic women, girls and their families. We talk about these issues in today's episode, which we hope you find useful and enjoy. If you do enjoy the episode, remember you can support us by going to Facebook and searching for the London Autism Group Charity and hitting the donate button or setting up a fundraiser. Or you can PayPal us a donation at londonautismgroupcharity at gmail.com. That's londonautismgroupcharity at gmail.com. Carly has produced a wide range of impactful resources, including her free online course, Bodies, Boundaries, Abuse and Reporting It, which I've linked in the episode description. She's also written many successful blogs and articles, some of which have been published in the national press. She also does many national and international events aimed at creating positive impact, both in terms of positive social attitudinal change and also steering government policy. She also mentors and personally supports families, works on research advisory panels and much, much more. All of this has led to Carly receiving an MBE for all of her work in May last year. So it's a real honour to have her on and we hope to have her back on the podcast soon. Talking of MBEs, I would like to take a moment just to congratulate David Grant, who last month received an MBE himself, which is absolutely fantastic and hugely deserved. David, of course, featured in episode four, and hopefully we can also have David back soon. We also have Anna Kennedy OBE lined up, for the podcast next month. Anna is an autism ambassador, founder of the autism charity Anna Kennedy Online, the founder of Autism's Got Talent, and a patron who has produced an immeasurable amount of impact for the autism community. Okay, with that all said, it now gives me pleasure to bring you our interview with Carly Jones, MBE. Thanks very much, Carly Jones, for joining the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very, very, very welcome. It's our honour to have you on. And we have here with us also Kieran Curry, who is, of course, uh, the London Autism Group charity trustee and fellow podcast host. Hi, Kieran. Hi there. Okay, so today we're going to talk about your journey and some of the, the issues that you think are most important when it comes to autistic girls and women and perhaps some of the social attitudes associated with that and why that might perhaps uh, make it difficult for autistic girls and women to live in society the way that society is currently set up or might challenge them in terms of getting a diagnosis all of that sort of stuff and some of your advice that you would give in terms of safeguarding uh, mental health and autistic girls and women that are perhaps struggling and aren't sure of which direction to go forwards in that all of that sort of good stuff so I'll begin with question one, which is talk us through your journey and experiences. Wow. OK, it's a very, very long story. However, in a nutshell, um, I was diagnosed um, as being autistic at 32 by the National Autistic Society, the Lorna Wing Centre, Dr Judith Gould. Um, but it wasn't a diagnosis that came easily or quickly. Obviously, I was 32, but there were two missed. Uh, there was a there's two two opportunities that were missed to diagnose me as well. One at 14 um, and one at 27. Um, so I was taken to see a psychologist, see a psychologist uh, when I was 14 by my parents. 
Um, this is going back, uh, giving away my age, 19, uh, 1996, and um, very much, uh, very little was known about um, about autism and girls in 1996, unless you were um, very, very clearly to, to the stereotypical and clinical mindset of, of, of the mid-90s, um, you know, if you appeared immediately very, very disabled, um, and I hate saying this, if you didn't, in inverted commas, look disabled, the chances of you getting a diagnosis were slim anyway, regardless of being male or female, um, but, yeah. but for females, pretty much not at all. In fact, I, I one lady got in touch with me and said that she was a training as a nurse in the early 90s um, and they told her you know don't worry about autism in girls because they don't have it wow really so, <laughs> yeah we've come a long way so that was a missed opportunity um, and then again at 27 and the reason I went back at, not to the same doctor obviously but the reason I went back um, at 27 to, to go through a diagnostic process was um, was because I'd had uh, three children by then and two who were, had a diagnosis of autism, um, and those those children being girls. So um, I had two two autistic girls, and I was told that um, it's impossible to have two autistic girls because autism only happens to boys. What are the chances of you having two? Um, actually, quite high. Uh, I appear to be an autism factory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, it was, uh, you know, I just got divorced. Are you doing this for attention? Why are you doing this? And um, it was, you know, I thought the refrigerator mother. Um, Thing had been left in the 50s evidently not um it was horrible every support group i went to everyone had sons nobody had girls and um and so yeah i uh, i went to get diagnosed at 27 and um the doctors actually he's a really good he's a really good uh, clinical psychologist he's doing tons for women and girls now but this is 10 years ago and um and he said oh no you can't possibly be um autistic you know you enjoy acting and um, and you're quite you're quite sociable when you don't look autistic you know but obviously acting was my way of coping particularly once i become a single parent and that the, the, the routine of marriage um, is, is quite a secure thing i think for, for a lot of autistic women because it's it's quite structured I then had to go back out into the wider world, make friends, um, and and acting again was my way of doing that because we're taught with our children, you know, uh, if they're struggling in a social situation, you you write a social story. Well, a script uh, for the stage is the best social story you're ever going to have mm. because it tells you what you're going to say, what the other person's going to say, where you exit, you know, stage right, stage left. If only the real world had a script, I'd be fine. <laughs> it's <laughs> standing on stage stuff is easy as peas. It's the just navigating everyday life um, that, that that I find difficult. Um, you know, if I had a, if I had a script, that'd be great. What was it? What was it that happened in, when you were fourteen? And you say there was a missed opportunity. In fact, you said there were two missed opportunities. Yeah, I was really struggling um, socially. I was struggling at school. I didn't want to go to school at all. I would spend a lot of time uh, skipping school or at the weekends. I can remember one weekend I just stayed home, went to my room, I was just staring at the ceiling, you know, um, which now would be very quickly diagnosed as somebody that's gone into a shutdown or maybe slightly catatonic. Um, uh, but, but then it was just, oh, she must just be a lazy teenager, you know. Um, highly interested in certain subjects to the point of it. I hate the word obsession, um, uh, but you know, very, very into certain things. And it, it, yeah, now I think if I was a fourteen-year-old today, it would have been um, quite, quite a swift diagnosis to say the least. Mm. But um, but yeah, I, re I really struggled. Um, 
and and just fell out fell out of school really and I ended up I was pregnant and homeless <laughs> um, within about a year after that so um, yeah life really deteriorated I definitely needed some help I don't think anyone knew how to help me wow yeah I, I often I often wonder about homelessness and uh, autistic mm. people actually how likely it is I think that a relatively high number of homeless people are autistic uh, yeah. that that may have put them at greater risk of of course social rejection uh, that that has led them unfortunately to homelessness and, and you know it really sort of fills me with shame and despair what what do you think about about that do you think do you think i i have a point that perhaps it is an issue among homeless people or and and what absolutely why do you think that is we need we need help with uh, money management um, we need, and obviously the social size that comes cohabiting with people are on a whole different level. I think a lot of autistic people, when they struggle too much socially, might turn to drinking and drugs in order to be able to self-medicate that. You know, it can be more sociable once they've had a few drinks or, or whatever. So there's that element. And also, I think if you have a absolute phobia of uncertainty um, and change... Should you get yourself, it's it's a, it's a, it's a big feat to, to get yourself out of a bad situation because if you are at rock bottom, it may be rock bottom, but it's certain. Mm, you know, if there's yeah. no way down from where you are, it's certain. Mm. Whereas any step you take in order to, to, to have an advantageous consequence and, and, to, and to do better and be better and work harder, that every time you do that, that's, that's a variable. Mm. It's the chance of rejection. It's the t- chance of it going wrong. Um, so, um, and often, sometimes I, I help a, a lot of young people. You might find that if somebody's feeling sad, it's quite hard for them, not even just with homelessness, but it's quite hard for them to move out of that sadness because sadness, at least it's certain, happiness can be taken away from you, can't it? That's you know, right. so it's that. So it's interesting what you said about, you know, drinking and, and substance misuse mm. as, a, as a tool for masking, perhaps. Uh, is this yeah, perhaps I, maybe, I mean, masking as we know. Perhaps you might want to say or explain what this means, but as we know, masking is something that autistic girls are perhaps better at or do more yeah. more effectively than, than boys. That's not to say boys don't do it, but perhaps this yeah. is one of the reasons why autistic girls, unfortunately, don't necessarily get diagnosed or get diagnosed late or never, or perhaps don't ever realise that they may be autistic uh, because they're think... doing masking... Uh, unconsciously so do you think that substance misuse and, and alcohol comes into that perhaps I, I certainly do I do see a lot of young younger women using that as a way to go out and a way to be social yeah definitely mm. um, but but I think with masking obviously masking being um, <laughs> almost a like acting acting but in real life if you like um, yeah. and copying we're, we're, we're great chameleons um, and there's a David Attenborough documentary and he said that chameleon doesn't change the way um, change itself in order to trick or mislead anyone or hurt anyone they're doing it uh, purely to survive to the different environments um, and the environment they find themselves in I really uh, really struck a chord in me one of the young girls about 17 that I I see fairly often she um, I was saying to her about being a comedian she was struggling in college making friends keeping friends not feeling she could be herself I said well we're we're great chameleons and uh, explained that to her and she went we're not chameleons she went we're octopi and I said, why are we octopi? She went, because an octopus not only has that same ability to change its appearance to its environment, but it's got two hearts and a massive brain. No. And I was like, I love her. <laughs> I, I, I'm, all of the best quotes I ever come out with, none of them are mine, I can assure you. I'm like, let me use that. And they're like, oh, go on then. You know, so, 
<laughs> and I was like, I love that. I love that metaphor. I love squeezing metaphorically, and that's a uh, that's a re- really good a good way of doing it. But yeah, masking is um, going into a situation, watching, copying, observing, um, and 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 to, to get by in that situation. The results of that, in fact, some professionals have said to me, "Well, that's a great thing that you can do that because you can get out and about a bit." No, it's not. Um, there's there's uh, many many um, uh, autistic people, male, male and female, um, end up with mental health problems. Uh, many uh, die from suicide. Um, and masking, we we're, we're finding out now. Um, you know, statistically, not just emotionally, we're finding out that that um, it's eroding self esteem. It's causing mental health issues. Um, it's it's a big problem because every time you have to go out and be something you're not you lose a bit of who you are sometimes forever and that's horrible that's really really horrible it could take an awful long time to to get those pieces back if ever at all um so it's yeah it's although to some people it might be seen as a as a good a good talent to have it's actually not at all it's a major risk factor isn't it because uh of more of poor mental health i think it was sarah cassidy's work uh recently that showed as you say correct quite correctly that camouflaging uh, and and masking were the strongest sort of uh, predictor of poor mental health among autistic people or I think it was autistic people generally and that that says it all doesn't it and I think it's probably the case that masking happens as you say as a as a sort of unfortunate need to cope and that's all entirely preventable isn't it I mean if you get a diagnosis early or if you just had acceptance uh, throughout yeah, that's the thing, yeah. yeah then then I suppose the need to mask and camouflage isn't there surely I think camouflaging and, and stigma correlate don't they because you know what why why are you trying to copy or uh, adapt to need to survive if uh, if it was the case that you know people loved you for just who you were anyway you know there would be no need yeah. wouldn't there and so this is another it's... important reason why stigma is so so uh, impactful yeah, absolutely. It's um, it, it's it's a really really tricky thing, and also I think when you've been doing that all of your life, it becomes an unconscious thing that you do. I I, I don't even know what I'm asking, um, because it's just you know you know again would a chameleon know when it changes its spots? I don't know if they would, but um uh, yeah, I, and we need to be very very careful when it comes to uh, professionals diagnosing autistic women and girls and boys, um, because if you have been masking all your life in a situation which is not at home, not familiar, by no means comfortable, you can pretty well take a good bet that the person that's come and see your diagnostic room is masking when you're diagnosing them. Yes. So it's about trying to find those cracks, trying to know what buttons to press almost, um, and, and, and seeing past the veneer. You know, if you say to a woman, um, do you have any friends? And they're like, yeah, I've got 4,000. And, oh, great, you're really popular. No, don't need to worry yeah, about that. Yeah. You know, um, are they Facebook friends? Are they Twitter friends? Are they Instagram friends? Are they Snapchat friends? A better question would be the last time you were ill, who came to visit you? Well, that's a great question. Because isn't isn't this it doesn't this also reflect the importance of uh, appropriate diagnostic procedures for that that oh, can identify yes. uh, autistic women, such as the disco tool, yeah. which is more oh, the disco yeah. tool. You know, is is a, a a tool that I think professionals need to be using to to get a more qualitative comprehensive dimensional understanding of autism as opposed to diagnostic cutoff points and uh, traditional using sort of applying traditional stereotypes 
that might be perhaps more effective in picking up boys. Uh, that's not to say totally effective, of course, uh, but more so with boys than than girls. And part of the reason why girls slip through the, the, the cracks, you know, unfortunately, professionals using problematic diagnostic tools and not yeah. being aware of the issues themselves, right? Is that, would you agree well, with that? I would, I'm nodding away like mad um, in, in agreement with you. The problem we've got with the diagnosis tools is that, okay, let's imagine, you, let's think about the driving licence. If you are going to drive a automatic car, you, you do your automatic driving licence, but you can't then drive the manual because you didn't pass that, you know, you haven't done the training on that one. You can't just go out and jump on a motorbike and you can't go out and certainly get in a big lorry. If you're going to diagnose um, it, using a certain tool, um, that's, that's, the, that's, that's what you do diagnose with. We have, we have to make sure that the people that are being diagnosed have had the best sort of diagnosis tool for them taught to their clinician otherwise it just becomes a postcode lottery for example um one of the diagnostic tools is admittedly designed probably around an eight-year-old boy not everybody is eight not everybody's a boy when they're going to their diagnosis um the ados is fantastic but i have known many people where it's it might have missed women and girls particularly when it comes to social imagination the the observing the observation of play because that needs to be, you can't just do that in an hour, that would have to be over months in my opinion, um, because you know, if, if somebody's playing a nice game that's different from a special interest or something, someone might say, oh, well, what fantastic imagination, but social imagination is, is very different to traditional imagination, autistic people are very good at traditional imagination, we have great, we have great creative qualities we write poems, we write plays, we write scripts, you know, an autistic man wrote Ghostbusters, what fantastic imagination he has but social imagination is, is, is understanding consequence in a social situation, understanding what happens next in a social situation. Not really going to get that in a, in a play situation using ADOS. So um, it's, and of course, in, in my opinion, social imagination is one of the most important things to understand for safeguarding. Because if you, um, if you're, if you have significant issues, understanding what happens next in a social situation, you can be incredibly vulnerable. Um, and the disco, I think, is is in my in my opinion. Um, the, and my daughters were diagnosed under ADOS, and I was diagnosed under disco. But in my opinion, it's it's the best diagnostic tool we've got out there because it doesn't leave anyone behind. It's very easy for us to go, oh well, here's a male, here's a male test, here's a female test. Well, first of all, life isn't that binary. Um, second of all, many autistic people feel like they, um, uh, they're almost genderless, if you like, gender fluid. Um, and on top of that, there are many males that present um, in a more uh, stereotypical female way that are left behind. I have a family member um, that, that, that was left behind because of that. Uh, and I, the disco tool is going to pick you up regardless of you know what gender you are it's going to pick out through life experiences and that semi-structured interview situation and it's it's a it's a thorough process it's going to pick up everything it's incredibly clever but but it, it might be yeah, in my opinion that's if, if if you aren't going to be a very neat i enjoy trains i'm a boy and uh, and and xyz all those stereotypical things go and get the disco because the disco will tell you what you are and what you aren't all at once <laughs> Carly, just to clarify for the parents listening who have either been, um, whose children have either been in a similar situation to yours yeah. have been where they missed a diagnosis yeah. or were misdiagnosed, um, what, how would they go about getting um, their child diagnosed under the DISCO tool? 
unfortunately many of the clinicians are private so you're looking at around about um, 1500 to 2000 pounds um, an awful lot of money if you want to go private with that there are some I believe NHS um, referrals worth a try but I don't know um, I, I don't know how common that is um, I it seems it seems such a shame because it's often the ones that really need the most the most help they're left behind on on, on the diagnosis um, but but yeah private would probably be the easiest way um, and that would be a case of going on the national autistic websites finding out the Lorna Wing Centre in Bromley and there's one in Essex now as well Chigwell um, they, they do the disco but uh, in, in my my opinion if I had a magic wand and I did write to the Women and Equalities Committee about this and it was published on their um, on their on the government website but um, I, I think diagnosis is a human right I think it's got everything to do uh, with feminism as well, mm. and and uh, and I really believe that um, we we should be able to have free diagnosis for all. Many many people are coming forward for diagnosis now, which is great. Um, but at the same time, does it also need to be mega, me, um, medicalized each time? Could there not be an identification process? Because diagnosis is an absolute luxury. Um, mm. Sometimes self identification um, and self awareness for for maybe perhaps older people uh, might be might be enough um but yeah there are there it's it's so hard i I know i know i'm so lucky to have a diagnosis i mean the key thing is if if you want a diagnosis then it's important that you should have be able to have access to high quality professional services uh free of charge and uh, equitable and accessible available to you and like you say it's that's not the case is it it's it's more of a luxury you know a lot of you know there's there's shortages in uh, state-provided services that, that do this sort of thing, certainly in terms of disco, because, of course, disco takes professionals more time to yeah. to go through, and that time costs money. And, uh, it's an awful lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's just not the way, unfortunately, our politicians often often think. They, unfortunately, prioritise it. Because it seem... isn't cost, though, Chris. It absolutely is. You're absolutely right, and I don't know why why they're not seeing that. Uh, but more than anything, they, you know, for me, they need to be viewing, you know, what's what's right, what's moral, yeah. what's what's best for one's health and happiness, as opposed to the size uh, obsession of, over the size of the economy. You know, well, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the thing the thing we've got, if we want to talk at it on a very pragmatic way, a diagnosis might be fifteen hundred to two thousand pounds. Okay, so but we know diagnosis comes self awareness, comes better mental health, comes support. So um, let's take away that you know you've saved yourself fifteen hundred, two thousand pounds. Let's think about the cost of a young girl if she goes into mental health crisis. That's three hundred and forty thousand pounds per person that goes into mental health crisis a year. And then if they go into mental health crisis, find themselves in abusive relationships or coercive control and all of these things, that is a massive effect on the benefit system, on legal aid if, if they if they fit the criteria to get it. Um, and and then obviously there would be um, children involved. I mean, it's just endless. It's just, I wouldn't even be able to... You're right. Whatever way you look at it, it makes sense to really make sure that services are funded properly and that all people, if they wish to have a diagnosis, uh, should be able to access uh, high quality, good access. Because whether you look at it in terms of cost savings or just whether or not it's the right moral, ethical thing to do yeah, both ways yeah. it's, it's you know pointing to the same same road isn't it that we need this to work better than what it is and at the moment for whatever reason that's not the case and as you quite rightly say it's a luxury um mm. for many people you know 
going private costs a lot of money and that's just not an option. If you've got more than one child that needs it, you know, absolutely autism being genetic. <laughs> if you've got, there might be the mum, there might be, you know, two or three children that were, you know, it's, you're looking about 10 grand, aren't you? To get, get, a, get, a, get, a, get a family, uh, a family diagnosed. And, and it, um, it, yeah. It, and it might not be also the case that, unfortunately, the uh, the private, you'd like to think that the private clinician or professional, you know, would have, you know, very high competency and mm-hmm. uh, ability. Do research, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's not necessarily the case also. So you may be finding that you're spending a lot of money on, on perhaps not quite the right experience <laughs> that you needed. It's not, you know, it's not a foolproof thing. So more than anything, I think we need... Uh, I think we need a much bigger provision of state-funded support, uh, which isn't just uh, a good in terms of availability, but also competency. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and to be uniform, we've got massive pockets in the UK. A prime example being, uh, it was a couple of years ago, and I got a phone call about one o'clock in the morning from a mother of a family I was supporting, um, and they're in Birmingham. And, um, and the young woman... Um, was having some mental health issues and was sectioned. Uh, her mum said, you know, I'm so sorry for you in the middle of the night, but I need you to speak to the head nurse because um, they don't believe me about her. I mean, she didn't have her diagnosis then, but she was on the, she has got a diagnosis now, but she was on the, the pathway, which we know can take years. And um, they're not believing me about her autism and, um, you know, the light's too bright, the music. So they've got, they have the TV on at one o'clock in the morning right next to her bed, you know. Uh, so she's like, it's just ridiculous. It's making the situation worse can you speak to head nurse so I spoke to the head nurse and basically the head nurse didn't believe me that this young woman could be autistic because she was black oh wow so we've got big problems and that wasn't a white doctor that was a Caribbean doctor (laughs) so there's almost what we need to do and that wasn't even it wasn't racism it wasn't discrimination that was fear and I've spoken and it puzzled me as to why it was this kind of complete shutdown I'm right you're wrong don't talk to me anymore type conversation and uh, I have spoken to some mental health nurses um, who are you know non-white mental health nurses and they've said the biggest problem is fear because it's a fear of they've already got so many discriminations that could be used against Mm. them don't give them another one it's almost their way of trying to protect protect them um so that's that's big hurdles and she was explaining about past mental health issues and you know all of these type of things so i understand it you i've heard you speak about the kind of i think you called it a double discrimination where you have people from black and asian communities i'm asian myself um, yeah and um and absolutely i think there is a very fear driven uh, a very fear driven denial yeah. about um, mental health mental health issues in general but uh, particularly with autism because it is no one wants to admit yeah. that somebody is wired differently and what that will mean for their life going forward um, it's real cultural issues isn't there Karen it's, it's, absolutely. it's worrying yeah so you see this often do you in your work is this part of your um, so you were talking about these quite close relationships you have um, with autistic teens, um, is this part of your ongoing work and their families? Yeah, so it's it's not just teens. I, I will. Um, there are families that have got um, young people um, out of uh, col- out of education, be it out of school, out of college. And um, I mean, I'm a home ed parent myself, but uh, I will go in and help support those families. One girl um, is now actually going back into full time mainstream education in January, which wow. is great. Being out of school since she was six. Which is really good, um, and you know we've we've done it in like a really fun way. So to practice for queuing up for a canteen, we've been going to uh, Toby Carberry's, and <laughs> we're doing we're doing it in a, in a really kind of fun 
fun way. But um, but yes, yeah, so I, I, I do. I, it's almost like I wish. I think why I help out so many teens in particular, um, as well as older women, is because I wish I could just kind of go back and save myself. <laughs> oh, <laughs> when I, I was that age. Oh, that was going to be one of my questions to you because yeah. I, I watched The Kindest Stable, which I would recommend all our listeners to watch. Go on YouTube and and dig it out because it was um, it, it was lovely, uh, kind of very moving, very hard to watch. But yeah, but, I can't um, watch it. I haven't watched it. Yeah, I, mean, I, I haven't watched it. I know. I mean, it was uh, you know, I don't know how much it's, it, it clearly did speak to your own experience. But yeah. what do you wish parents? You know what. What do you wish your parents knew? What do you wish that non-autistic parents could know to help their daughter going through what you clearly were going through? Um, that every every act of defiance is a cry for help. Mm-hmm. Um, every every distraction is, 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 is as long as it's healthy. That's the important thing. Special interests. Uh, as your special interest will save your life as long as it's a healthy one you know if your special interest is drugs and alcohol forget it but if, if your special interest happens to be acting or it happens to be um, animals or whatever um, that special interest if life navigates from being on the right track to the wrong track have the wrong friends the wrong boyfriends the wrong partners whatever um, you, that special interest will always bring them back mm. um, so, so harnessing to... harnessing a special interest as uh, as a way of giving them self-esteem and, yeah. and, to, and validating purpose. it. Yeah, purpose, yeah. absolute purpose. Because if we don't become, um, if we don't follow our own purpose, and I truly believe every autistic person has a purpose, they're here for a reason to do something. I, I, I have that unshakable belief. Um, but but if we need we need to follow our purpose, um, because if we don't, we're going to you know live in dogma and 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 be and be used by someone else for their purpose which might not be in our best interest so uh, try and keep it going try and keep the special interest going I think uh, this comes back to your very important point earlier about the word obsession in that yeah. you know it's. I think it's important that, that parents and people don't conflate obsession with special interest in fact yeah. there's no reason necessarily to think that a, a, a special interest might be an obsession because the problem for me is that the word obsession implies some sort, some sort of uh, problem, some sort of yes. negative, uh, uh, negative relationship with something, and that's that's just an assumption and not necessarily the mm-hmm. case. And uh, like you say, I think it's important to sort of harness and go with it, you know, to go with the special interest and uh, to to view it positively and to uh, to use it in a way and harness it in, into understanding. Uh, your autistic child's uh, uh, world and interest, um, and I think that you know, if you if you're viewing it as an obsession, then you're mm-hmm. you're likely to be trying to pull pull that person away from it, yeah. and that's the Kill last thing. <laughs> yeah, that's the last thing they they need. Uh, so so that's really really important, isn't, isn't it? There's nothing wrong, is there necessarily with especially and unless of course it is directed at something clearly unhealthy. Yeah, I think I think that uh, when we have a special interest um that that's a really good source of employment or self-employment in the future you know somebody who might have uh, a special interest on a certain band you know or make up a 101 unofficial facts about whatever band it is you know shove the internet at christmas everyone's gonna buy us a stocking filler we're very good entrepreneurs we need to just we need to see it for what it is and um you know it, there's a very thin line isn't there 
there's a thin line between somebody who's autistic with a special interest and somebody who um, maybe is autistic or isn't, that's an expert. Why, why can't we say that that's an expertise? I really think the educational system, so when you're, um, when you're 15, 16, you're at GCSE level, um, which is a, a shallow amount of knowledge on many subjects, and then you move up to A level and you might pick up two or three or whatever. And then it, it gets finer and finer until you're at PhD level, which is a very, very specific part of a certain interest which you've been fascinated for. And you've locked yourself in your study for seven years to talk about. That person is a genius. So when a seven-year-old child who from the minute they could sit up has been interested in a certain thing has stayed in their room studying it for seven years, why are they then disabled? They're, they're doing point. their PhD, mm. you know, and then, uh, and I think we're the other way around. I think we start at our PhD level. We know why we're here. We know what we want to do. And then by the time we get to our kind of 50s, 60s, it's like, oh, I never learned that. But then we're at our GCSEs. Never learned Spanish. Let's go off and drink lots of wine in Spain and learn a bit of Spanish. I think we're the other way around. Uh, it's almost like Benjamin Button, isn't it? Uh, I think we just do it the other way around. And I think, you know, if, if a child's really into something, I'm pretty sure Edison, he invented the light bulb. Um, well done to his mum, just letting him get on with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I've been, um, with my son, I think we, I've been guilty in the past of wanting to diversify his interests uh, too, too much, too early. And what I think I just failed to see is that the amount of comfort and it gave him to just you know it's the security of going over what you know already there is a comfort to it it's like stimming isn't it I guess yeah so um so I think I was ignoring that part of it but also to have a depth of knowledge you know of anything gives you an incredible amount of self-esteem and self-worth um to know that you are a mini expert on in whichever field um it uh I think it it certainly makes him feel incredible and I think that you're able to then look to others and identify in others that they have similar motivations maybe not in the same subject area but a similar passion for what they love it's a good way to find your tribe as it were you know I think um so my son certainly can identify others who kind of are really into something in a way which is more into it than his other peers would be and he tends to gravitate towards them you're, you're absolutely right, actually, because, first of all, we are especially interested. Our expertise can lead us to have really good friendships with people of a similar, um, a, a similar uh, you know, hobby. We can go to those same classes as them or whatever, and that, that builds a, a, a social relationship. But also, I can remember listening to a motivational speaker, and he was an athlete. He was talking about, we have to do at least 10,000 hours to be considered an athlete, or you have to have trained for this long to be able to be in the Olympics, and all of these kind of things. And um, and I am the least sportiest person in the world. Can't swim, can't ride a bike, can't do a skipping rope. I'm just rubbish. Um, but I immediately felt some sort of connection with this, this, this motivational speaker chap, because I thought... Um, and plus he was quite good at doing all that motivational speaking stuff but it was like well I can I can relate to that because if mm. we think about all the campaigners how many hours have they clocked up they're athletes in their own right aren't they absolutely they're, they're activism or whatever um, and I think yeah whereas before if I hadn't have been <laughs> you know been left to get on with what, what I'm passionate about which is which is campaigning I would never have been able to relate to someone like that certainly didn't at school I thought people that enjoy sport were really weird um, so it's, it's, it helps you helps you build relationships with other humans which is really important yeah I mean that connection being able to find a connection to another person it's difficult enough for neurotypical people um, but uh, I think that connection is key I've always felt it um, 
so yeah it's I, I think long live the special interest in all its glory. Can I just make a point on that, Kieran? Because, you know, you, you were saying uh, earlier how you, you know, you you were sort of guilty, you know, you're being very honest. <laughs> and I think, you know, you know, so that's really nice that you're saying that you're guilty of perhaps trying to deflect uh, or steer your son away from, from something that had a special, he had a special interest in. But, you know, I just want to make the point that I, I think it's it's nothing to, to feel negative about as a parent or, mm-hmm. or nothing... Nothing that you should feel guilty about. Because, of course, you know, none of us are programmed to know automatically everything that is, you know, the right way forwards or the more healthy way forwards. How, how will we know unless, of course, there is a sort of social, cultural change towards understanding autism in a more healthy, positive, real light that isn't so stigmatising? What I'm trying to say is that we're not, we're not going to know all the answers unless uh, things shift. You know, and and it's good to be having these kinds of conversations in order to push that forwards, you know, so that perhaps the next round of parents or the one after that can sort of, you know, appreciate that going into diagnosis. But for those parents, you know, at the moment who who are thinking, crikey, I'm listening to this and, you know, I'm always trying to pull my, my son away or my daughter away from that and... Crikey, I might oh, we've be... all done it though, haven't uh, we? Yeah, We're I might. Of it. Don't, please don't. Yeah, <laughs> please don't feel guilty or or because, of course, none of us have all the answers straight away, you know. And uh, it's it's more of a socio cultural wider issue uh, that I think is steering these uh, problematic problematic outcomes, as opposed to the power entirely in your hands as parents, you know, in yeah. terms of your responsibility. It's something I just want parents to be mindful of that you know that you're trying your best and as long as you're you're listening to new ideas and you're open to that then you're thinking critically and re- reflecting upon them good on you and go for it yeah I agree with you Chris we've uh, hindsight's a wonderful thing um, and also only a parent knows their child autistic or not um, and it may be the case for that person that actually they were enjoying this for the first three hours but now they actually can't pull themselves away and they haven't eaten or they haven't had a wash or you know or they haven't had any any fresh air um so yeah it, it's it's uh it's, it's not it's, it's difficult. not black and white is it it's yeah. so difficult yeah. for parents i think they're so vulnerable i mean the research is it clearly tells us that parents of autistic children are so terribly vulnerable to poor mental health and i think part yeah. of part of the reason for that is that they you know they they just feel like they are doing their child you know wrong all of the problems and challenges and issues that their child seems to be facing uh is is a consequence of their actions or inactions oh, and i just think fair. that's there's you know i think that's just very 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 unfair so long as you like i said earlier can can think about perhaps changing course uh, when you are exposed to new ideas, uh, then, you know, and you're trying your best, then that's that's the main thing. I think we shouldn't ignore the fact that much of what we do is influenced by the, the wider socio-cultural values and attitudes and structures that exist that are, to be frank, completely out of your control until these kinds of conversations and more research and policy shifts begins to change that. Well, I can't think, really, of any other disability condition call it what you will I can't think of any other one where the parents get blamed as much as autism everything's our fault everything mm. um, you know what did you eat when you were pregnant what do you do why are you doing this your routine's bad or oh, your routine's too rigid you know we're you know if, if you had a deaf or a blind or, or, or a wheelchair using child I don't think people would go to the parents and go your fault your fault as much as they do if you've got an autistic child people can't it seems in society still um, it's getting loads better, obviously, but they can't really kind of navigate the, the autism from behaviour. 
it's yeah it's, it's not easy I think the thing is though it, and which is why I'm just so appreciative of your work and actually any of the autistic advocates and, and the advocacy work that I've kind of looked into just as part of the process of being involved in the charity in the Facebook group it's um it's incredibly eye-opening and it's all massively constructive in terms of how you can adapt you don't have to I mean I, I say I feel guilty but actually it's it's guilt it's not guilt without action yeah. um, and I think that listening to you know watching your your um, short films um, kind of reading your articles watching little segments of, of video that you've done as part of your campaigning it's just all good information useful information that I can use to make myself a better parent for my son obviously taking what applies to me so I mean thank you so much honestly it's amazing what you've achieved I'm a little cry now oh no in four years it's phenomenal and it's a real testament because you are a parent you know so this is what you have done as a parent and I think it is empowering for other parents, neurotypical or autistic, to to see what you've achieved. Um, um, we may not all be getting MBEs, but it's we can use what you've taught us, and I think it's great. And just to segue from that now um, onto um, an issue I think that makes parents feel vulnerable, um, you know, it really hits us to our core, is the idea of safeguarding um it's incredibly pertinent to autistic yeah. girls just as it is for neurotypical girls um however i think it applies for um boys as well really if you could talk about um because obviously this is a, a special focus for you i understand as well yeah. um just your thoughts on on safeguarding now and and with a with a view to what we as parents can do um to be of practical help to our children Okay, well, first of all, because um, it is quite a, a, a gritty subject, but first of all, the fact that the parents are listening to this podcast, they're already making their children safer. Not due to anything that I'm about to say, but due to the fact that a parental understanding um, or a diagnosis of, of that young person makes them 73% safer. And I know this because a couple of years ago, I did an informal survey. I had 88 anonymous autistic adults and I asked them if any of them had experienced any form of abuse prior to diagnosis slash support. 91%. Oh. 91%. However, <laughs> out of that 91%, um, yeah, 73% of them said, actually, after diagnosis or support, um, I either A, didn't experience any any form of abuse or um, I could recognise it and report it timely. So the fact that, that somebody's listening to this podcast with a young person in mind, they've already made them 73% safer. So that's the first thing I want to say. Um, diagnosis and support is in incredibly important. Um, now, we have significant issues, uh, female or male, but our significant issues is uh, jargon. We might, um, with our social social language communication issues, we don't really understand sarcasm, our sarcasm too well. We don't understand jargon too well. I said to my daughter, who is luckily 20 years old, I said to her in, in the supermarket, we like to watch wine, um, watch movies and drink wine at the weekend. And uh, and I said, oh, shall we Netflix and chill tonight? At which point she started laughing and said, do you have any idea what that means? I was like, no, I just heard it. So I repeated it. And uh, Netflix and chill, in my mind, was let's watch Netflix and relax. 
but it's not. But it's one of those things, like you know, in the in the eighties, nineties, it used to be, oh, you know, come around and watch a, a video or whatever. It's it's hooking up with someone, it's having sex with someone. And I said, you know what? And I I said that really worries me. Hey, it worries me because I've just asked my child that. Luckily, twenty years old in a busy supermarket but b what worries me more is had i have been a 13 14 year old girl and an 18 19 year old boy text me said you're on netflix and chill tonight and i'm like yeah love it i've just consented to sex but i didn't realize that's what i was consented to i just thought you wanted to watch some films um so that i said right i'm gonna go home and write an article about that and i did and it ends up in a national newspaper but i think that makes us really vulnerable what makes us uh, again, even more vulnerable is um, theory of mind type issues, which uh, is quite a clouded subject, but it's it's about um, understanding somebody else's brain holding different wants, needs, thoughts and agendas to your own. If you have some issues with that, and I, I do have issues with that, um, you might not be, A, you won't, might not know that person's real agendas for the meeting up. B, if something happens on towards which you want to report, if you really believe that what's happened to you other people know about because you know about it why would you report it because you think they already know so that's really hard so um reporting abuse timely is a massive hurdle it's just incredibly tricky for us social imagination understanding what happens in a social situation the consequence how on earth can you even understand what the word help is because help um requires two things it requires the information in your brain going into the information of somebody else's brain normally by speaking by saying this has happened to me so that's that's the theory of mind issue the second issue is understanding consequence now why on earth would you ask for help if a you already think the person knows and b you're not really sure of consequences and help is an advantageous consequence so help what's what does that word actually mean we need to really talk about the word help with our young people to, to be able to give them the tools to report things when they're not happy about it so there are loads loads of loads of issues around that um i've made a is free it will always be free um online course called boundaries bodies abuse and reporting it for autistic girls people with sons have used it too it's just a case of i feel very uncomfortable giving advice to um to to, to males because i've never lived an autistic male life uh, and I, I want it to be able to be something that I've actually experienced myself in order to pass pass that hindsight on. Yep, yep. Uh, it's not because I'm, I'm I, you know, I'm sexist or anything like that. How do people access that, Carly? It's online. It's free. If you just pop it into Google, it's run. Um, I, I, I wrote it and hosted it, but it's, it's, it's run by um, Open Learning. And if you just Google in boundaries, bodies, abuse and reporting it for autistic girls into a Google search, it'll be the first that pops up. If that doesn't work, which it should, go to my website, which is um, BritishAutismAdvocate.simple, S-I-M-P-L, without the E, don't know why, BritishAutismAdvocate.simple.com, and, um, and and there's a link a link to it on there, but that, that's that's completely free. I'll, I'll also... I'll also just to say I'll also link in these these websites into the Thanks. description of this podcast episode. Thanks, I really appreciate that, Chris. Um, I'm in the process of making one for women because um, it, it's quite well. It's mild because it's designed for young people, and, um, and we have to be a bit responsible there. But um, I am designing an 18 plus one, which covers absolutely everything that you'd want it to and not want it to, to be honest. Um, which uh, I'm, I'm going to put a survey out later today uh, to, to, to get some responses for that. But um, but yeah, we, we need to be looking after after ourselves and and, and our friends and uh, sisters and, uh, and 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 young people around us. But it's it's very important to not become too cynical. 
and it's very important to not let this hold either yourself as an autistic woman or as a parent of an autistic uh, autistic girl um you know we can't become too cynical we can't stop enjoying life um because that would just be horrendous for everyone it's just a case of being a little bit a little a little bit more aware aware of of the vulnerabilities but not you know still got to have have a good life <laughs> just just make sure that you've got some um some strategies in place i guess for for things don't go right and i think as um parents um of young autistic children we always mm. forget going to become autistic adults at yeah. some point. and i think we kind of we but i don't know we perhaps have a tendency to keep them in a bit of a bubble yeah. um, and then but part of the problem with that bubble is that it may keep them safe but it also prevents uh, valuable information getting through to them it underestimates their ability to process that information if it is um designed for them so i think it it, it also is the question about i guess what kind of sexual health teaching there is in school and whether or not oh, it's yeah. to autistic students i think it's certainly something i'll be looking to for for my son because i think we kind of take it as a given that it's all going to be sanitized and age appropriate but mm-hmm. appropriate for the neurodiverse audience um but there is no doubt in every school um, it's, a, it's just a simple thing so um the nspcc do incredible work and they have the pants rule don't they so um i did speak i had a lady from the nspc over and i had a meeting there i spoke spoke to her but um so with that that's great you know if somebody touched you in your pant area then you report it well that's good however as an autistic person that's that's quite I'll take that quite literally. So if somebody had asked me to touch them in their pant area, that isn't what I've been asked to report, is it? I've been asked to report if somebody touches me. So if somebody was smart enough or manipulative enough to 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 make the person the, the young person touch them rather than the other way around, they're not gonna report it. So now I think they do say if you touch in the pant area or you're enticed to touch them in their pant area, report it. You know, it's 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 just simple bits of wording that can that can make things accessible or not. Um and and yeah, we need to we need to do a lot more a lot more to to, to safeguard people about, about their boundaries and boundaries not just being and it's explained in the course not just being about a physical boundary but also our mental boundaries you know saying no um, to to whatever requests we need to also protect our mental health and our emotions that's just as important as protecting ourselves physically um, and and many many autistic. Um, children are, are educated otherwise be that in part-time school be that in in um, alternative provisions be it in home education private tutors whatever not everyone's going to get uh, the sex education that is in school anyway so hence hence why doing an online course because it's anyone can you know anyone can have that as an add-on or as or as something just because there's nothing out there uh, yeah. uh, I'm glad you mentioned mental health because of mm. course uh, autistic people are far more vulnerable to poor mental health than the neuro typical general population what kind of advice would you give to autistic girls or women who are really struggling with their mental health and for those people who are listening and you know are struggling you know what what would you Carly say to them I would say that they've probably given every you know you can't pour from an empty empty kettle can you they've probably given away every single part of themselves to everyone else thinking that's going to make it better or that's going to get you liked or that's going to you know got to solve the problem and you need a bit of time to to look after yourself and not just in a you know make sure we have a nice bath or all those kind of things um but you know to to really sit back and go 
if if everybody else's needs weren't a distraction what would you want from your life there are some really good books actually you know that you can i saw them the other day in uh, in one of the in one of the bookshops can't remember what it was called now but it's basically right about all your ambitions all of your hopes and you're trying to do it from your perspective now a lot of time when we hear about autism we hear about a lack of empathy i'm not even going to start there because that to me that's just laughable um but we 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 have this problem with oh will they anything about their own thoughts and nobody else's uh, actually, I, I disagree with that. I'm, I'm baby for some people, but um, you know, my, my, I always I, I make dinner every night, and I and I put three plates of food out, um, and I will feed my my young people and not so young people, and then sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I'm like, oh, I forgot to make myself any food because my mind's so preoccupied on on um, on helping everybody else and doing what they need that I can't, it's almost like I can't think about myself at the same time as thinking about other people so I tend to forget myself so I keep myself in check now I'm a little bit more selfish it's great I'm like no we are having a curry um, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but, but we can be a bit more that way yeah it's, um, it's a complete misconception and myth isn't it that autistic people yeah. uh, don't have empathy or have lower rates of empathy I mean that's absolute yeah. nonsense there's no evidence to suggest that and it's a complete misconception associated with the way that we clinically understand what empathy yeah. looks like and how we sort of measure it which which is again i think is problematic isn't it uh, oh definitely yeah. but but yeah just just you know try and go back to who you are um try and go back to to all the things you wanted before there's a lovely quote online uh, i'm probably going to get it wrong because i've got it in front of me but it says um something about um try and remember who you were before life got hold of you and that's really powerful to think about that. You know, if all of the things that maybe have happened to you or around you hadn't have happened, who would you be? Try and think about before life took over. What were your what were your wants, needs, and ambitions? And um, these... it's okay for wants, needs, and ambitions to change, but it has to be in your own in your own benefit. Are these the sorts of things you would have you, you would have told yourself when you were fourteen and struggling with with all of the issues that you unfortunately were facing? Um, I'd probably tell myself that that nose piercing looks horrendous. Um, <laughs> a, a bleached perm isn't an attractive thing to do. The silver puffer jacket is cool. Keep that. And don't let people... And I was, was bullied about wearing the silver puffer jacket all the time. Do you remember there was a Levi's advert that had the Spaceman song? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And every time people <laughs> sing there, every time I came along. And now they're reselling them. I'm going to girls, does anyone want a silver puffer jacket? They're like, they're vile. I'm like, oh, I want one. Um, <laughs> and I would say to myself, be nicer to your mother... <laughs> um, and and I would say all the people that you're knocking about with who you think are are your best mates, you won't even know them in two years from now. Um, and and I would say clean your act up. And um, and and the school refusal was actually the best idea you ever had. But instead of wasting your time, you know, in that point of school refusal, try and find something else. Um, try and find something else to. To get to get those because I haven't left school, no GCSEs. Um, you know, try try and concentrate on yourself, your ambitions, your wants, your needs, and um, and maybe sit down with your parents and explain to them that no, I'm not going back to school, can't cope with it. Um, but this is what I am going to do instead. I'm going to make you proud. But yeah, lose that haircut, God. <laughs> <laughs> we all have to have a bad haircut. <laughs> Just to talk about um, the wider issue of gender. Um, I picked up on something that I watched in a YouTube video. I think you were talking to gender champions. It might be a couple of years old now. Um, 
And they were talking about the concept of a gender champion in the classroom. And yeah. and I think you then um, said that it inspired you to have the idea of, uh, you know, an autistic champion, but specifically female autistic champions. I think you alluded to the fact that there are so few for girl, autistic girls uh, yeah. to look up to or to, you know, who, who are um, kind of loud and proud about their about their diagnosis um, and the neurodiversity. Um, could you speak a little bit about that and, and how um, any of our autistic listeners might be, uh, kind of might feel that they could be part of this process of opening up for the future generation of female autistics? Yeah, I think, I think that video, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm remembering rightly, was for the Institute of Physics. Um, and they, yeah, they have gender champions, so they will get a school and sponsor a school a small amount and then they have... Um, have a somebody that's a gender champion for STEM, um, and and yeah, I do think it would be good if we had an, an autism champion at the school um, that that was there. The problem with it is you don't want it to be tokenistic. For it to work, it has to be implemented. It can't just be another. Oh, I've done an hour of this training, therefore I know what I'm talking about. It yeah. does need to be implemented, which can be the gender champion seems to be doing quite well actually. Um, but but yeah, we need. Uh, there are loads more now on um, on Instagram, uh, YouTube, Facebook. Um, lot a lot more um, autistic girls coming forward, which is incredible. There are some great YouTubers with massive massive followers, um, and and that's that's fabulous. Um, so yes, I think for the younger girls, be out and proud about it. What makes you different makes you great. Don't be ashamed. You would be surprised. Actually. Um, you'd be surprised the more that you are your yourself the more people that are meant to be in your life come and stay so um it's actually quite a good a good way of immunizing yourself from bad friends is to be yourself um and also i really like a lot more uh, older women you know uh to, to come forward i'm talking kind of 50 60 plus i'm really interested to know what it's like to be an autistic woman what it's going to be like for me in kind of 25 years time um i i, I want to know um, and, I, and I want those advocates also to, to be able to share what it's like. Our autism is never fixed. I know autistic women um, who are are in their late fifties who have said, "Do you know what? The way that my autism my autism is completely changed. I went through the menopause, and now they're saying if you tested me on a male scale, I would tick all the boxes." As opposed to, so our, our nobody is exciting. Nobody knows really what happens to an autistic woman post menopause. I'd be interested in that for very selfish personal reasons um but it's it's yeah it's it's incredibly interesting so again going back to diagnosis and and role models helping to support a clinical understanding as well um i hope clinicians watch watch lots of lots of autistic women on, on youtube and such to get together you know we're all so different aren't we but yeah it's the clinical understanding is important because i think if somebody was diagnosed at eight and you've got the you know the same person get them diagnosed at eight then send them back in and then send them back in at a different age you're going to see completely different patterns of behavior because mm-hmm. life is different people change we are people who have personalities and life experiences we are people as well as as our as our condition so doesn't that um, doesn't that sort of reinforce the need for qualitative approach to yeah uh, diagnosis as opposed to you know uh, closed captioned scales you know that are static yeah, yeah. absolutely i i can i can agree more it's um this goes the way to go. I'm not as paid to say that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> neither am I, neither am I. <laughs> I would lastly like to ask you if there's anything else you wanted to add 
about anything that we've talked today regarding autistic girls and women and stigma and mental health, anything whatsoever you'd like to add? Mm-hmm. Just one very, very short statement that if you have a young person that's just been diagnosed or if you are a young person that's just been diagnosed or even a not-so-young person that's been diagnosed, there's never been a better time to know that you're autistic. There's never been a better uh, a better a better historical date than, than than now and that's going and hopefully that's going to improve um there is so much more understanding out there so many more courses so much more safeguarding so many role models and, and a massive massive autistic community that there has never been a better time to find out so that's going in favor uh, and secondly really important if you do go online uh, and and you're making autistic friends that are also autistic that's great but don't feel that just because somebody else is autistic that you're immediately going to get on. Um, there is that kind of... Um, with women, we do tend to, actually. We tend to just magnetise and then talk to the, you know, cows come home, don't really understand that expression. But um, we do do that. But but don't feel bad if... It, or, or even less autistic. <laughs> you're like, oh, well, I can't be because I didn't get on with that one. People all have different personalities as well. So um, just... But you're, you've got to find some really good friends and, and some company as well. So... Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's all positive, I think. Well, that's really hopeful and positive. I think more than anything, autistic people need a good dose of hope, don't they? So thank you so much oh, for that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you're, you're really welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. We're, the honour is ours, genuinely. And um, I look forward to talking with you again, perhaps in the future, hopefully. Yeah, I'd love that question. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you so much and all the best. And thanks, right, Kieran. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Take care, Carly. Bye-bye. Bye.